that's what I want you to see this morning. We're in First Kings. We're going along, plugging along through this series on the books of First and Second Kings, noting all the way through just how relevant these particular passages are for us. Yes, even though they describe people and events and circumstances that seem so ancient to where we are, ancient from us, uh, they are actually some of the most relevant truths, some of the most, I would say, contemporary truths, if I can use that word, uh, for us right now. And I think that will be very apparent in today's passage. Uh, Our text this morning at verse 21 uh, introduces somewhat of a new narrative sort of style that the historian uses as he's going through these books. If you remember, for the up until this point, really, he's been sort of digressing on particular kings and, and, and spending time elaborating on like the circumstances and the backstory concerning each successor after David. He spent some time with Solomon, noting how he came to power and also what he did and then how he fell. And then he spent some time with Rehoboam. And then now just recently he's spent some time with Jeroboam, the wicked king over in Israel. And so he's sort of digressed on each one. He's situated them them in their historical settings. But now you'll notice in verse 21. And now he's going to sort of start a new sort of way. He's going to introduce kings and go through their reigns. It's almost like he opts for just little digests abstracts of these kingly lives. And in fact, all Rehoboam gets are these verses. And then in verse 29 through 31, you have that little uh, digest, that abstract that uh, sort of ends his reign. No more, su- no more overly detailed accounts or very long backstories so far. Now it's just going to be little digests of the kings and what they did, sketches, so to speak. And in fact, from verse 21 down through verse 24 of chapter 15, that's the prayer that I'm going to get through all that this morning. Uh, he covers over 60 years of history just in Judah alone. So it's sort of like he spent some time with Israel, noted how Jeroboam is off doing his crazy thing. And it's almost as he's coming back now and he's saying, meanwhile, this is what's going on in Judah. And he covers all of these kings and their very erroneous decisions. But here he summarizes uh, King Rehoboam's reign. And he also, I think what he does As he pits these kings together, we're going to see Rehoboam at the end of chapter 14. At the beginning of chapter 15, King Asa. And then after that, or King Abijam and then King Asa. Through each one, what I think really comes to the surface is just the the sheer incapacity of man uh, juxtaposed against God's ultimate sufficiency. This is one of the sort of elementary, if you can say, uh, ways we can boil down the Old Testament scriptures. Is this page after page of man's insufficiency pitted against the ways God is sovereign and sufficient for and in all things. And such is what we're going to have here as these three kings are made to be seen as just the desperate sinners that they are. And I think through that desperation we're going to see uh, our the one that we are truly needy of the one that we are truly desperate for so let's go through that this morning i've uh, put an outline on the uh, powerpoint for you to keep you sort of organized let's see if we can get up there yeah here we go so the first one i want you to see is the abominable and this is king rehoboam 
So in verse 21, uh, after spending some uh, three chapters in Israel again, we come back to Judah and we come back to Rehoboam. Notice it says in verse 21, And Rehoboam the son of Solomon reigned in Judah, and Rehoboam was 40 and 1 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord did choose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess. Last time we heard, if you remember, from Rehoboam was all the way back in chapter 12. And he and Israel were sort of licking their wounds, so to speak, in the aftermath of Jeroboam's descent and secession from the kingdom. If you remember, he made a really erroneous decision, a really bad speech, which led to this revolt by Jeroboam. And the disruption of God's kingdom happened under Rehoboam's reign. His pride and ego and his arrogance uh, definitely played a part in that development and led to that rupture. But here we're given a little bit more detail concerning his reign, including this sort of similar indictment on King Rehoboam and what he does with Judah itself. Notice verse 22. And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. For they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also sodomites in the land. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Much like verses 15 and 16 of the same chapter, where those verses sort of serve as the the tragedy of the northern tribes. Here, these verses are really indicative of all of the travesties and calamities and the things which belabor all of Judah itself. These are the things which plague them. They are doing evil. They are allowing sin to not just fester, but to blossom and to flourish. Their deeds were utterly evil above all that their fathers had done, which ought to be reminiscent of the very same indictment laid down on Jeroboam and his ilk. That he was sinful above all kings that were before him. And here Judah, the kingdom which was specifically chosen by God to be the one that preserves his kingly reign, preserves the name of Yahweh alone. Now they're building their own high places. Verse 23, much like Jeroboam began building those false places for false gods to worship. Now here Judah's doing the same thing. They're almost like in the sense that they're trying to one-up Israel in terms of abominations. Because now they're building these places for cultic worship, which is what they are. He says in verse 23, they built them high places and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. The very idols, the very uh, uh, false systems of religion which were so prevalent in this land of promise before Israel arrived. And which uh, when they did arrive were totally eradicated according to God's decree. All of those old ways of religion are sort of dusted off. (laughs) And brought back into prominence as legitimate forms of worship for the people of Judah. Again, this is exactly what's occurring here. As he says, these images and groves that are being constructed are basically uh, houses of worship for the goddess Asherah. 
These trees, these Asherah trees were used in the, in the worship of this goddess. They were noteworthy for this system of, of religion and ritual. And all of these services which worship her were so filled with promiscuous and sexual ritual that it's, as he says here, they are allowing these abominations to come into this nation of promise. You can see the devastating uh, decisions of man. These abominable and actually the word can be translated disgusting forms of worship are not just being allowed to infiltrate. But they're actually influencing the entire fabric of Judean culture and life. Such is why. You can, it's not hard to imagine why God would say in verse 22 that he's being provoked to jealous anger. <laughs> Righteous indignation at his very people's plunge in decision headstrong into unrighteousness. This, of course, I think is a result of a long gestating generation's long decision to be unfaithful to the covenant that God had made with them. You, you, you read that small detail in verse 21 where it was talking about uh, Rehoboam's mom. It says, uh, yeah, there at the end of verse 21, and his mother's name was Naamah, the Ammonitess. And if you notice, it's, that detail is repeated all the way again in verse 31. And his mother's name was Naamah, the Ammonitess. Mentioned twice. Each instance here, the historian is being very careful to include the nationality of Rehoboam's mom, which I think is indicative of Judah's compromise as a nation itself. They had allowed pagan cultures to influence them, not just in religion, but in relationships. And in all these matters, all of these little seeds of pagan influence are now bearing their fruit with this happening now. You can see that this has been a long time coming. <laughs> the, the, the things and the decisions that they had made generations ago, decades ago perhaps, were now bearing fruit in the form of outright abominations being accepted and grasped and clung to by this nation as a whole. They're gravitating towards the very systems of worship that God has expressly forbidden and in fact, in Deuteronomy, you can write this verse down. Deuteronomy 18.9, he says this. This is God's declaration to his people. When you come into the land of promise, he says, the land that the Lord thy God hath given thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. And he tells, he has already told them in Deuteronomy chapter 12, if you read the first couple of verses there, to express, he's explicitly told them that these very groves, the groves of Asherah, are to be utterly demolished. And now you see this amazing, unfortunate parallel where now Judah is reestablishing the very things that God had told them not to have a part of. Again. It's no wonder God's anger was kindled. Because the very people that he had chosen to bless and desired to bless and have as a blessing for the nations, as the promise is to Abraham, have now basically replaced him. They've upended him. They've not just added someone into the mix of gods. They've added a God to replace him. 
the one true God. They had absolutely and categorically failed to uphold the covenant promises that God had covenanted with them. All those those stipulations of, of fidelity and faithfulness and singular worship of Yahweh alone are just kind of cast aside. And these abominations are allowed to now, as he says, to flourish. They're being accepted. And Judah is plunging themselves headlong into destruction and oblivion. Such is why, in verse 25, God judges them. And it came to pass, verse 25, in the fifth year of the king Rehoboam, that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took, even took away all, and he took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Shishak here, the Egyptian pharaoh, sacks Jerusalem, plundering all of her treasuries, as it says. But so far beyond the loss of these material emblems of wealth and prosperity, actually what was happening is that Judah was losing this luster of God-given opulence. Again, if you remember, as we noted throughout those, uh, those chapters which detailed the construction of the temple... If you remember where Solomon was laying everything with gold, which isn't uh, something that we ought to uh, sort of have a side eye towards. It is an emblem, it was a a sign, a, a symptom, if you will, of God's incredible blessing on his very people. And so you can see now, see how this is sort of brought out to where that sign, that emblem of blessing, where Solomon was overlaying everything with gold, is now being taken away. God's blessings were fading from view. A demonstrable sign that God was judging them. These blessings were being taken away just as those those pitiful little shields were. And all that glitz and that glamour, all of the amazing opulence of the old regime was fading. An indication that God's glory had itself faded from Judah's collective view. They no longer saw Yahweh alone. (laughs) They were seeing Yahweh and, 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 and. They were accepting abominations into their midst. And I think this slow fade, if you will, is further illustrated by Rehoboam's response to this. Notice 26, these gold shields, they're taken away in this siege by Shishak. And what does Rehoboam do? Verse 27, and King Rehoboam made in their stead brazen shields and committed them unto the hands of the chief of the guard, which kept the door of the king's house. And it was so when the king went into the house of the Lord that the guard bare them and brought them back into the guard chamber. (laughs) So it's now instead of gold shields, what they have are bronze shields. (laughs) A very small detail, but I think it's it's significant and noteworthy of just the fact that things were being faded. God's grace and glory were fading from Judah's eyesight. And yet, Rehoboam is sort of standing in that collective position, that sort of position of proxy, where he's almost saying, I am sure that we can still save ourselves. Let me just make more shields. Let me just make more ways that I can defend myself, defend my throne, defend my name, to defend my kingdom. Who's unnecessary in that scenario? 
Jehovah is. He doesn't need Yahweh's blessing. I'll just go out and make my own defenses. You see here, Yahweh isn't just not needed. He's unnecessary. To the very people that Yahweh had chosen, had brought out, had delivered, had brought out of untold bondage and slavery. And led them through all of those years of wandering and all of those years of unsettlement and all of those years of violence. And now here they are totally rejecting this one. Again, you can see why Jehovah would be angry with them. <laughs> You can see why his righteous indignation would be a little bit kindled at this point. But I cannot help but think that all of these sad developments that occur in Judah's nation and Judah as a nation and in the individual lives of all the Judeans were not the results of overnight sins. They didn't just wake up one morning and and decide, let's build a grove for the goddess Asherah. It wasn't just something that happened. It was decision after decision. It was small seed of unfaithfulness and unrighteousness bearing fruit. And more and more seeds of unfaithfulness and unrighteousness. And you can see how all of these abominable compromises were made because of all those small decisions that happened over the courses of lifetimes and generations past. And now they're bearing fruit. And and this, I think, is Judah's truest abomination. Is their compromise with the world. God had set them up for singular worship. And now, after compromise and after compromise, they had entertained other gods. And they had essentially lost their faith. You can see, I think, what the point... To me, the point of the historian here is to drive home the the very necessity for faithfulness right now. Not just for your sake, but for the sake of your grandchildren and great-grandchildren after you. Because the seeds of sin that are in our lives, we may not see them right now. (laughs) They'll bear fruit later. They'll bear horrible fruit later, perhaps, for those that follow us. Faithfulness right in the moment. I think this, if you really want to, another way you could sort of boil down the scripture is that everything that matters is about faith. Jesus, everywhere in the Gospels, was preaching that message. That if you want to get into the kingdom, it's about faith. All, everything there, it's always about that. And I think here, even in the Old Testament, the same is true. That those who are faithful to Yahweh alone are those who encourage and foster and have flourishing faiths. And here, you can see exactly what the historian is noting That those in this particular nation and generation were unaware. They were oblivious to the seeds of abomination. To the seeds of unrighteousness that they were sowing. But now they were surely reaping them. In the form of this horrible judgment. And then Rehoboam just fades out. You notice verse 29. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. 
And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother's name was Naamah. And Ammonitus and Abijam, his son, reigned in his stead. He kind of fades out as well. Just like God's glory had. Just like God's sort of position in the place of all the Judeans' heart had faded. So too Rehoboam faded from view. Like we noted last week with Jeroboam and the acts that he performed in that book that it notes there in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings. It's not our Chronicles. It's a book that doesn't exist in human history now. It's lost time. This one allowed abominations to influence and change everyone's hearts. Or actually I should perhaps say it this way. That he allowed these abominations to reveal what was in their hearts already. But let us hasten. We have the abominable one, the lamentable one. As we go into chapter 15. Rehoboam passes away. His son Abijam takes the throne. As we note there, it says in verse 15, 1, Now in the 18th year, King Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, reigned, Abijam over Judah. So we have here what's going on, that Jeroboam has been firmly situated as the king over there in Israel for now 18 years. So they're sort of in a steady mode of operation in terms of kings, but Judah is going through some turnover. Rehoboam has passed away. Abijah comes to the throne. But what's so fascinating is that there's not much to talk about this guy, Abijam. In fact, the only insight we're given are these couple verses. When we're told that he had a short-lived reign, only three years, and that was fraught with sin. Notice verse 2. Three years reigned he in Jerusalem, talking about Abijam. And his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Absalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Again, rather than living according to the Lord's commands, the Lord's words, the Lord's ways, the very, very evident, very prominent, very public stipulations according to the Davidic covenant that God made with David and all of Israel, he instead walked according to the sins of his father, his maternal or paternal father, I should say, Rehoboam. And then just like his father, Abijam endured just a reign that was full of sin and conflict. Notice verse 6. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his stead. A very succinct summation of this king's legacy. And what is that legacy? He is one who is carrying on a legacy of just abominations. He's carrying on his daddy's will for this king. A will that was so full of evil and vileness and wickedness. But I notice two, verse 2. Because this legacy of abomination stems way further back than just Rehoboam. Notice again, his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Absalom. She was descendant of David's wicked son, Absalom. He was, she was basically Absalom's granddaughter, making her the great granddaughter of King David. 
Think about that. But I think this is the precise image in which we're made to see how lamentable was Abijam's reign. (laughs) A legacy that he was meant to carry was the legacy of his great, great grandfather, (laughs) David. Instead, what does he carry forward? He carries forward more filth, more abomination, more sin that permeates and pervades the people of Judah. And yes, despite being of the lineage of promise, despite being of that very bloodline, he botched all of those promises by living according to himself. Or actually, you could say he lives according to his biological father instead of his covenantal father. What a a sad tragedy is King Abijam's reign. Three short years and they often are sort of you can just blow them and they blow away in the dust. Nothing to remember. Nothing of semblance to stake on. The abominable, the lamentable. But notice verse number nine. I want to hasten because I want to get there quick. The commendable. Because after those three short years... Of, of Abijam reigning there. His brief stint as a king ends. And then his son Asa takes his place in verse 9. And in the 20th year of Jeroboam. So he's still going strong as the king of Israel. Uh, reigned Asa over Judah. And 40 and 1 years reigned he in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Maacah. The daughter of Absalom. So this is his sort of great grandmother so to speak. One of the... Ways in which we have to understand these passages is that the ways in which the historian is talking about daughter is not literal daughter, but she is a female descendant of, is how you ought to perhaps read that. But he is a rather commendable king, this King Asa, precisely because he receives the first ever mention of covenantal fidelity, covenantal faithfulness. Notice verse 11. And Asa did... That which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David his father. There's almost like a breath of fresh air with Asa. He is finally doing things the right way. Unlike all of those other despotic kings that were around him, that went before him, that were ruling all in his, as his contemporaries, they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. They were letting in abominations all around him. He is faithful to the Lord's word. He's actually doing it the right way. And in fact, he sort of begins what we could call a religious renovation over all of Judah. Notice verse 12. And he took away the Sodomites out of the land and removed all of the idols that his fathers had made. So he banishes all those old abominable temple prostitutes and he scraps all of their idols, utterly destroying them. And in Second Chronicles chapter 14, a parallel passage to this, he actually stands and preaches, preaches about repentance to all of the people of Judah. He stands and makes sure that they see that the only one they are made to worship is Yahweh alone. He is the one that we are to worship. So he's coming in and he's sort of turning everything upside down in terms of how Judah had become familiar with it. But even more fascinating than that, in verse 13, he actually leads and allows and actually makes sure that this renovation project comes to the royal household itself. 
Notice verse 13. And also Maaka, his mother. Even her he removed from being queen. Because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa destroyed her idol and burnt it by the brook Kidron. Now, this is a really fascinating scene. First of all, the guts of Asa to do this to his grandmother. <laughs> but you have to see here essentially what's going on. Because Maaka here, the, 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 as she's noted, is the queen. She's, uh, again, as we noted, the, of the lineage of Absalom. She's basically the queen mother. As if you can think about it in terms of the royal family over the United Kingdom, that's her role. She's essentially the matriarch of Judah. She's the one through whom I think everything goes. <laughs> She's sort of the back, sort of background queen, the one who's making decisions. And I really get the image that this person, Mayaka, is sort of uh, using her sway amongst her family to get what she wants. She knows how to leverage things. She's made a, uh, her own sort of house of worship, this, her own grove, and she's using it to perform her own sort of a style of worship here. And here Asa says, no. (laughs) No, this renovation happens all the way. And he comes in and he takes out her idol and he pulverizes it as what the word actually means. He pulverizes it and then he burns it. And not just that, he removes her out of her position as queen mother. A very public scandal in the life of all the Judeans. (laughs) Again, you can see Asa is very zealous for the things of the Lord. He wants a full and a total surrender to Jehovah alone. No compromises. No little sort of leeways. No ways that we can sort of have this faith sort of leak out into more unfaith. So at this point we might be thinking, this Asa guy... Man, he's what everyone has longed for. He's the one everyone has needed. Judah's being renewed. They are at peace. If you read in 2 Chronicles, it says they are experiencing a decade of rest. And their priorities are right. Notice verse 15. And he brought in the things which his father had dedicated and the things which himself had dedicated into the house of the Lord. Silver and gold and vessels. These sort of spoils of old wars. He's bringing in and consecrating them to the Lord first. Their priorities are right. He's checking all of these boxes, so to speak, of what it means to be a good king. But we ought not to be surprised because Asa falls too. Notice verse 14. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. He remained faithful to his cause, but he didn't destroy all of the high places. That's essentially how that verse is made to be read. He destroyed most of them, some of them, but not all of them. He didn't get rid of all of them. He was faithful to a cause to a certain point. Because what happens? Verse 16. This new king of Israel, which don't let that fret you. We haven't read about this guy and how he came to the throne, but we will. King Baasha. And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. 
And Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might not suffer any to go out or to come in to Asa, king of Judah. So what's happening? Baasha here is coming up. He's the sort of the new guy on the, on the block in Israel, and he's making a name for himself by coming right up against the Judean border and sort of controlling their trade. Ramah is a, is a city that was situated about six miles from Jerusalem, and now he's fortifying it, and he's eight in and out, as he says there, he's controlling who goes in, who comes out, he's controlling all of their economy. Again, this is really bad news for Asa's political and economic ventures. <laughs> and that's when he has this bright idea. <laughs> what is his bright idea? Notice verse 18. And then Asa took all of the silver and the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord. Pause. The very treasures that he had consecrated to the house of the Lord back in verse 15. Now he's taking them. He's withdrawing them, verse 18, and the treasures of the king's house. And he's delivering them, it says, into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabraman, and the son of Hezion, the king of Syria, that dwelt at Damascus, saying, There is a league between me and thee, and between my father and thy father. Behold, I have sent to thee a present of silver and gold. Come and break thy league with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. So what's his ploy? He's making a withdrawal out of the treasuries of the house of Judah. And he's using all of those monies, those treasuries, as a bribe. He's bribing the king of Syria to make some more war a little bit more north. So that he can be distracted. And we don't have to worry about, uh, about him sort of controlling our trade routes. Because with Baasha here being distracted by a northern invasion of Syria. You could best be sure that he's going to... Sort of deploy all of his forces to that front and not worry about Rama anymore. He's sort of making up a ruse, making up a conflict in order to save his own political skin. And his plan works perfectly. Verse 20, so Ben-Hadad hearkened unto the king Asa and sent the captains of the host which he had smote. Or which he had against the cities of Israel and smote Ijon and Dan and Abel Beth Mayaka, excuse me, and Sinirath with all the land of Naphtali. And it came to pass when Baasha heard thereof that he left off building Ramah and dwelt in Terza. Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah, none was exempted of Ramah, and the timber thereof wherewith Baasha had builded, and King Asa built, and with them Geba and Benjamin and Mizpah. So, what happens? Baasha leaves, all of his building materials are just sort of left. You get the sense that they left in a, in a haste, in a rush, because they had heard this news of Syrian invasion. And then Asa comes, claims, uh, claims Ramah for Judah, and not only that, he uses those same building materials and uses them to fortify more cities to secure their border and their defenses. You can imagine, Judah is singing his praises. He's saved himself. He's going to, if in our terms, he's up for a re-election bid. He is best being sure to guarantee his re-election. He's saving himself with this decision making. But the question that we have to have here is why is this juxtaposed with this guy Asa? And why is it juxtaposed against with this sort of good decision making? There's this tenor as if we're made to feel bad about what he's doing here and rightly so. 
Actually, more detail is given in the Chronicles account. So go with me really quickly to there. I want you to see this. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. Because if you're wondering what God thought about all this, well, you don't have to wonder. (laughs) He tells us through one of his prophets. Notice verse 7. Notice 2 Chronicles 16 verse 7. And at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God. Therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore, from henceforth, thou shalt have wars. Then Asa was wroth with the seer and put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. So he's trusting in his politics over and against his God. That's this prophet's declaration to him. You have this situation that came before you. And yes, even though despite your, your faithful reformation before, despite your success actually in getting out of the situation, what you have actually done is demonstrated that Yahweh isn't powerful enough for this specific moment. You haven't trusted him for this. And in fact, look at what the chronicler says at the end of Asa's life. Look at verse 11. And behold, the acts of Asa, first and last, lo, they are written in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Asa in the 30 and ninth year of his reign was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease, he sought not the Lord, but the physicians. That, I think, is very indicative and suggestive of the remaining years of Asa's reign. He sought not the Lord, but he sought intangible things that he could control, that he could manipulate, that he was able to utilize. He couldn't bear trusting himself to Yahweh, this unseen God that he wasn't always sure was there. And yes, despite the sweeping reform that he brought about, Asa remains only a commendable king and not an impeccable one. Because he trusted in himself over and against the God who had put him there. What, again, he's yes, commendable, but also what a lamentable legacy he leaves. Not quite the king they needed. Not quite the one that would bring Judah back to dominance. But stay with me. I'm almost done. That brings me to the last one I want you to notice. The impeccable one. Because in all of these specimens that we've noted. We have Rehoboam. We have Abijam. And we have Asa. There are very prominent holes. Perhaps some more or less prominent. But there's very uh, sort of very stark evidences. Blemishes on their records. We, no one's perfect. We know that. But throughout all of these sort of years of Judean history that, the, that the, now the, the historian has brought us through, what are we made to see? What, uh, what rises to the surface? What's the point? Notice, notice 1 Kings 14 verse 21. 
Notice where Rehoboam is reigning. He's reigning, as it says there, in Jerusalem. Notice the city which the Lord did choose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And notice chapter 15, verse 24. Notice where Asa is buried. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. To me, there's a very small but still perceptible beam of light and hope, we might say, in these references. Precisely in the recurring mentioning and recurring reminder that these are all the people in the promise of David. Yes, this little flicker of hope is much weaker than in decades past. Much smaller than in all the ages before, but it's still burning. It's still there. It's the fire of God's promises to David. Remember, we've said in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible, where Yahweh is covenanting with David, and he promises him dwelling and dominion and deliverance. And he says in that promise in 2 Samuel 7, he will give him an unending dominion. Notice Second King or First Kings 15 verse 4. You might have noticed I skipped these verses intentionally. Notice what it says. Nevertheless, for David's sake, did the Lord his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Again, what are we seeing here? That there's one who keeps the promises even when his people don't. And even it's mentioning there, even David, he failed the standard. He wasn't impeccable his whole lifetime either. He has that very noticeable blemish with the sins of Bathsheba and Uriah on his record. But again, what's the promise? That there's a lamp in Jerusalem and it's still burning. There's a a flame in that city that is there that is reminding us of the promises of God. That there's one that despite all of the ages and movings of history, there's one who remains unmoved. There's one who remains unfazed. And yes, he's sovereignly overseeing all things. And there's this one that we're made to see who is never not faithful. And it's this one Yahweh. Jehovah, the king of all kings. He's the one who stays the same and who says in Hebrews that his promises yesterday, today, and forever, they do not change. They are unalterable. He's always overlooking his people and working all things to draw them to himself. Yes, even if that means he's letting you get to the end of your rope, as he was with Judah, as he was with Israel. He is making himself be seen as the only impeccable one of all history. The one that we desperately need. Such, I think, is what he's doing through all of these generations of disaster and division and decadence in Israel's history. He's making it to where they will have nowhere to turn but to him. Where they can see that they need someone better. Yes, even better than David. 
They need a king who's, who's not just commendable. They need a king who's impeccable. They need a king who is perfect. Enter the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one. He's the one through whom all these things are made to be fulfilled. I think all of these shocking elements in these stories are there for us to see how God uses history and people and generations to further his will. They're made for us to see how patient he is. He's doggedly patient. He's stubbornly patient. And he remains immovable and impeccable in faithfulness at all times. Have we seen that recently? Have we seen that in our days? Days that we might rightly call lamentable and abominable. (laughs) But have we been made to see that there's one who remains and stands tall as the impeccable one over it all? That there's one whose hand oversees and over, uh, overrules all things and bends all of time and history according to his purposes. And his promises will be sure because he's the one who is standing above it all. This, my friends, is the greatest truth of all truths. That regardless of the age and day in which we find ourselves, there is a king who hasn't left his throne. There's a king who is still reigning and his name is Yahweh, Jehovah alone. Regardless of who sits on the throne, regardless of who is sitting in that office in D.C., there is one who remains impeccable over all of history. It's not us, thank God. It's not any of any of the other people in power. It's this one who is sovereign and might and glory and majesty. The one who is the Alpha and the Omega. The one who is the ruler over all things. The governor over all history. The God of all grace and the king of all kings. It's Jehovah alone. Do you trust in this king this morning? I pray that through all of the years of history, we'll be made to see that this king is truly above all kings. That his sway, his words actually do what they say. He remains unmoved. He is the impeccable king we desperately need. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.